Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens. I run Strength Guild, Lift for Hope, JCUSSF, the Barbell Open. I'm a powerlifter, Highland Games athlete, and my son Odin is one years old today. Awesome. <laughs> so happy birthday. Awesome. Okay, we have with us Anthony Almada. Um, maybe just a, a sentence or two about yourself. Hi, guys. Anthony Almada, nutritional exercise biochemist, uh, likes to play with science and train and surf. There you go. And we also have David Barr. Dave, maybe just a comment for yourself. Uh, firstly, I think it's very cruel to make me follow Anthony Almada, but uh, <laughs> yeah. that's okay. also like to play with science and uh, play with my dogs. Okay. All right, everyone. The first thing we're going to do today is culminate the quick fire questions uh for those of you who might just be joining us or you didn't see it back in april uh listeners sent in just a a host of questions uh for us to answer and we've got uh, some really good guests on today so we're going to have fun with a couple of these uh the winners that are going to receive some iron radio swag are it was partly random but it was also people who were persistent and, and gave us multiple entries or even just topic timeliness kind of come into play here. So our first person uh, for – and we'll just do this in a roundtable format – but was Danny Rose Piper. Uh, you are one of our winners. She had some multiple entries, and here are the questions. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll go around instead of asking everybody all of these questions, I'll just – randomly ask you guys some of her questions um how about for david here we go white or brown rice oh brown brown phil squats or hip thrusts squats (laughs) (laughs) um for anthony sugar or artificial sweeteners sugar okay um yeah there's a couple of fun ones on here I'll take the one. H-I-I-T or steady state? Um, I think it kind of depends on your goals and how you define those things, but I'm not supposed to be fooling with those operational definitions. I'll say H-I-I-T, high-intensity interval work. So that was uh, one of Danny's. Let me see if I can't find another one. She's got some silly ones in here too. How about about Phil? I know you'll uh, delve into some of the – Cookies and candy and stuff. What you know when you need to peanut butter M and M's or Reese's Pieces? Oh man, Reese's Pieces. You got to go original, man. Et. <laughs> yeah, I'm with, you. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. Okay, uh, our next uh, winner that was chosen again for those reasons is Emma Green. So congrats to Emma. Uh, and again. This will sort of be random what we send you, but it could be a mouse pad, mugs, T-shirt, you know, water bottle, that kind of stuff. And you could contact me, by the way, through the website, through ironradio.org. 
uh, and you know we even have some flexibility in which one of these things you want. So, okay, Emma says uh, I'll give this one the first one to fill again: battle ropes or sled? Sled. Yeah, I'm with you on that too. Uh, David, sweet potato or white potato? And just to clarify, you're sending me the prizes for answering, correct? <laughs> <laughs> well, I can send you a I can send you a prize, I guess. Sure. <laughs> oh, sweet. All right, I love the sweet potato. Okay. And then uh, just another question: She has uh, Anthony, pasta or pizza? Pizza. Okay. Let's see if I can find some more from Emma here because she sent some other ones. All right, um, this one might be another good one for. Anthony, I'll fire some nutritional things at you. Beans or lentils? I have to invoke the Mexican heritage beans. <laughs> okay. Uh, here's one for David. And I know Phil has opinions on this too, but for David, pre or post-workout nutrition? Oh, come on. Uh, we'll, we'll do pre, but i, I got to hear Phil on this. <laughs> All right, Phil. What do you <laughs> I think? agree. Pre-workout. Yeah, I knew you would. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll take this next one. Actually, this would be a good one for John Mike uh, to cover, but bench press or overhead press? I'm going to say bench press, but that's close for me. I don't know. Phil, you're the most competitive probably in, in that way. What would you say? I'd say overhead press. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, that's close for me. Um, all right, David, treadmill or bike? Oh, bike. Bike. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah, I would I would dodge that question. I would say elliptical these days because my uh, orthopedic problems won't <laughs> make some make that necessity, I guess. But um, Anthony, walking or sprinting? Sprinting. Okay. We have one last one. That was from Emma. So thank you, Emma. Our last one is Sean. Uh, Sean Maloney. Our third and final winner, and again, partly random here, but. Also, the timing and that sort of thing. Mm, Phil, snatch yes. or clean and jerk? Oh, that depends. I'm going to go clean and jerk. Okay. Um, oh, I think this is another good one for you, Phil. Knee sleeves, uh, cl- should they be classed as equipped or raw? Oh, it depends on the knee sleeve. <laughs> I'd say raw. I mean, they have to be raw because, I mean, wraps have been raw for decades. So okay, you're not yeah. going to get more out of a knee sleeve than a wrap. Right. So. Yeah, that's what makes these some of these hard, right? Because yeah. you can't qualify too much. Yeah. Actually, a lot of these are really good for you, Phil. Belt, prong, or lever? Prong. Really? Yeah, okay. the lever belts, I shift weight too much. You yeah. know, like right now I'm 250. Two months ago I was 275. I don't want to take my belt apart and change it. Right. No, I hear you. When I can just... Change a prong. Well, I'm all about the prong, but then I like those leather bodybuilder type belts, you know, yeah. I, instead of some of the, the powerlifter belts that go from your crotch to your neck. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, you get to see my bias there. Um, oh, here's a great one. We'll end with Anthony. Evidence led practice or practice led evidence? I will opt for the first evidence led practice. I'm going to agree with you on that. Uh, I, I can understand where he's going with that though you know the truth is that's sort of a reciprocal model anyway um but yeah 
Okay, so that was our quick fire questions. Thanks, everybody. I think there were 38 or 40 entries there, so uh, pretty good. And some of these really funny. Uh, maybe in a future episode, we'll even just run down the list of some of these other ones because some of them are, are really funny. You know, like like we got guys like uh, one for maybe for Phil, whiskey or bourbon or rye. I mean, there's some good <laughs> ones in here. And I'm not saying Phil's a lush or anything. I'm just saying uh-huh. it'd, be, it'd be funny. I want to give one bit of news real quick, Lonnie. Before sure. We go much yeah, further. let's do it. The, uh, yesterday I saw that they announced IWF is banning Russia, Belarus, and Kazakhstan for a year. And this includes the Olympics as far as weightlifting. Oh. So we have a chance at a medal. <laughs> if we, if we <laughs> right. ban enough countries, we just may get on the podium. So Yeah, a chance uh, by default there. Stuff. Yeah, but thought that was interesting news. And, and then, is that like, on the heels of all the drug testing stuff? Yeah. And then like five other countries, they like docked athletes. So because um, you have to qualify and you qualify through a point system, you get a number of athletes by the points. And so they docked a number of other countries as athletes. So one or two athletes. So interesting. Interesting stuff. Yeah. Um, okay. All right. I'll tell you what we'll do. Uh, we've got a reasonable chunk of time before we go to the mid-show break so we have two topics uh we have some guests that are you know i'm always hesitant to use the word expert for myself or for anybody else but these guys are are experts in these fields and i want to touch on uh their thoughts so the before we go to break we're going to touch on nutrient timing uh this is something that came up in an article that i wrote recently and uh, I've had discussions with David about this a few times that sometimes uh, nutrient timing gets overstated maybe uh, when we talk about whether it's proteins or carbs, pre, mid, post-workout. Sometimes it's about the window of availability, you know, of opportunity after a workout. Uh, there was also a talk down in Florida recently uh, talking about this, you know, that this is not a narrow doorway of time, but it might be more like a garage door you know, of time after a workout stimulus. But uh, just, David, I just because uh, I was thinking about you specifically with this one, I, I know Anthony has lots to say about this too probably, but workout nutrient timing, um, has it been overstated? What do you think? I would say profoundly so. Okay. <laughs> yes. Can you? And um, often it is done without an actual definition for what nutrient timing means. Okay, can you so to, to put this in perspective, to back up a bit, I was so into nutrient timing that I decided to pick up my life and move to Texas to study this at the lab that had inadvertently introduced the idea of nutrient timing for protein. Mm-hmm. So very cool stuff. Amino acid drinks, looking at exercise, looking at muscle protein synthesis. And shortly after getting there, I mentioned this to one of the researchers, and he just, there was a look of dismay on his face. And it was almost like, oh, son, I'm so sorry. Come here, sit on my lap. I got some bad news for you. <laughs> it's, it has nothing to do with the timing of the workout. It's all about the amino acid delivery. And this is where I need to give you, Lonnie, some pretty serious credit for introducing the concept of the nutraceutical effect to me. And that was really what we were seeing and what we were often interpreting as a, a post-workout window for protein. Mm-hmm. So, so you, but do I, you think something 
is there as far as, I mean, the trigger, uh, the, sti- the initial stimulus, for example, could someone just be taking a, a leucine-rich, you know, a product or meal, uh, irrespective of a workout and get identical results? I mean, how, how do these two things play off each other? Because these are both stimuli, stimuli in some way, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The, the way I look at it is, uh, is the protein synthesis is like your car. And you can have leucine as the key to start the car. But unless you have the rest of the amino acids available, the car's not going to go. The, the rest of the amino acids are like the gas. So great, you have no gas, you're not going anywhere. But with regard to nutrient timing, there does not seem to be an enhancement of the muscle protein synthetic response, that, that muscle growth recovery response uh, when it comes to ingesting those amino acids and exercise. There's no synergy or enhancement. Although you do need the gas to run the car because the exercise itself can also serve as the key. It can stimulate muscle protein synthesis. Yeah. So yes, you need the gas, but there's no enhancement not it's not going to cause a greater increase in muscle protein synthesis when you combine the two mm-hmm. anthony what what's your take on this I, I like to take the answer to what the intended outcome is so as david said nutrient timing hasn't been defined with clarity it's been used around it's thrown, thrown around become a bastardized phrase. Mm-hmm. And so I would always offer the question, okay, if you think nutrient timing works, what does it do that you can see, feel, or measure? Oh, I'll get bigger, or I'll get stronger, I'll have more endurance, or I'll lose two inches around my waist. Okay, let's p- apply those standards to the evidence. Do we find that nutrient timing, if the same supplement or meals are just given at different times, but everything else is equal, improves something like that the answer would be almost exclusively no it does not the only one that really does in in the context of resistance training is paul Cribb's study from a decade ago but it involved creatine and they took creatine pre and post along with whey protein and the other group took it same product but hours before and hours after training and we know from resistance training work or exercise training work endurance training work that creatine uptake will be increased by exercise and so we don't know yet from a, a, a whole body or phenotypic or performance basis with the exception of carbohydrate if protein will translate into a benefit and a couple of studies have shown no benefit of timing compared to non-timing everything else being equal okay do the deep dig and as for the evidence that's consumer or athlete relevant, not a short-term four-hour window of increased protein synthesis, but no one's looked at protein breakdown. We're looking at whole body effects, people. We're not looking at something you can't measure or feel because no one, there is no such thing as a drive-through biopsy that you can get. And, oh, I'm anabolic right now. Okay, I'm good for the next four hours. Uh, so this is sort of a difficult question, but... Uh, what would your suggestions be? Do you have some, just painting with broad brush strokes here, what suggestions would you have? I mean, is this just an issue of meals and workouts necessarily overlap? You know, they're, they're not mutually exclusive in your 24-hour period, you know what I mean? And there's lingering metabolic things going on or like what 
practical information might you teach someone who is interested in something like muscle gain? Uh, I think I'll jump in first. Okay, yeah. And uh, I, I would say we need to start with re, uh, reinventing the definition of nutrient timing. It's not so much about the workout. It's about your preceding and your following meals. So, for example, if you're waking up first thing in the morning, you're typically catabolic. Get a fast protein in, uh, like whey, to try to mitigate some of that that breakdown. Excuse me, stop the breakdown and actually uh, induce a transient or, or short-lived anabolic state. Mm-hmm. Similarly, uh, before you go to bed, before you're fasting overnight, we actually know uh, sleeping is a horribly catabolic situation uh, in, in direct contrast to the common uh, most anabolic time. Uh, so consume casein before bed, as an example, to mitigate that catabolism, maybe turn it into an anabolic situation, and you multiply that across, what, months, years, that's going to translate into, into some muscle mass, most likely. So it's, it's really about the preceding and the following meals. But if you want to hammer home uh, workouts, uh, nutrition, like you talked about in the, the initial um, round robin or whatever it was, mm-hmm. the... Um, Fuel your workout. Don't be protein fasted. Have some carbs, not just for your muscle, but for your brain, for your CNS. Fuel your workout because that is the main stimulus for adaptation. So, Anthony, your thoughts on that? It makes logical sense to think of if if your muscle system is an engine and it consumes fuel and the actual act of training turns on both an anabolic signal and a catabolic signal that whatever you could do to maintain the anabolic signal, provide protein or amino acids, turn off the catabolic signal, raise insulin, which could come from protein alone, and then replace fuel, carbohydrate, that it should or could translate into an adaptation response that's superior to not timing. But I think what what is most relevant to apply is don't wait hours to eat after you train. Try to eat something that has some carbs and it's up to you how much and some protein. And if you can get that within a short period of time as allowed by your schedule or your preparation, go for it. It won't work against you. It may work for you. Yeah, I, I know it's always sort of a uh... – a challenge, right? Because to me, scientists often speak in caveats, you know, like only in this situation or only at this dose or depends on your goals or depends on, I don't know, 24 hour clock, uh, so many different things. And it's always difficult to ask, you know, men of science, women of science, like what would you, what would you do in a very practical real world situation? Cause there's just so many sort of control issues, I guess, but, uh, okay. Well, that's going to cover just our at least initial foray into the nutrient timing issue. Uh, we're going to go to break really quick. When we come back, uh, I have just several questions about ketones, uh, ketotic diets, uh, supplementation, uh, all manner of things here, and we're going to dive into that. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, 
all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote-unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that. And uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book. But that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. And on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, We'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook – uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website, and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media, and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Okay, everyone, we are back, and we're going to talk about um, ketotic diets, uh, keto supplements, all manner of keto, I suppose. Um, and we're going to first go to Anthony Almada with some of uh, these questions. And I, I suppose the first question is, um, where did all the buzz come from? Uh, what's your take on some of these diets? And, you know, we'll get into more specific questions in just a minute, but... Uh, why the interest in this sort of thing? Keto diets, as, as I've seen, and I can recall an article in Muscle and Fitness in the, I'm going to say the late 70s or early 80s. Yes, I'm in my 50s, <clears throat> where a, a where I first read about a super low carb diet, and I tried it, and it was very difficult, and I tried it, I think, for about a week. But I, I think the global or, or the near global buzz emanates from keto's origins in weight loss diets and the ability for it to produce dramatic changes on the short term that were very visible and inspiring. It gave birth to the whole Atkins, found, uh, I shouldn't say foundation, the Atkins revolution and the Atkins buzz. And for physique athletes, 
it's long been used as a tool to shape uh, and reduce fat with the presumed uh, outcome of retaining muscle mass. But then what, I th- what we started to see several years ago, and part of it was spurred by Jeff Volek, who did a lot of very elegant studies sponsored by the Atkins Foundation, mm-hmm. is it bleeding over into the ultra-endurance world, where the challenge for the endurance athlete is, how do I get enough carbs? And when I do get enough carbs when I'm racing, I get gut rot. My stomach is very uncomfortable. I have to throw up or I have explosive diarrhea, being very blunt. How do we get around that? Well, why don't you try keto? Then if you rewind back into the early 80s in Steve Finney's work, which to me has been greatly painted over and several key things have been omitted, which which we can get to, it now entered into the world of endurance athlete and performance, not just uh, physique. And so now you see the, the confluence and then Jeff and Steve's faster study which came out last november which the faint the flames of that were fanned for about six to eight months by people that were participants in blogging about it and making claims of burning 100 percent fat wrong uh, sorry for the opinion there or the the observation it has become a very hot and continued topic and then the emergence of ketone supplements uh that's a very interesting discussion because almost every everything out there Half of the ketones that are being ingested are biologically unnative or undesirable. And that, and that we can get to mm-hmm. also. But I think all that together continues to fan the flames of keto, still with the underpinnings of the foundation of it being able to change one's appearance or their physique. Okay. David, what are your thoughts on, on some of this sort of thing? Because I know you have an interest in this. But for me, this is just a really cool living, breathing science experiment. Uh, I don't know if you guys can think of anything else that will cause such a dramatic shift in the the metabolism uh, during exercise, during rest. I mean, actually, can you guys think of anything that comes even close to a keto diet? Well, it's a pretty dramatic intervention, you know, and the way I've always looked at this is sort of that we have a we have a carbohydrate, refined carbohydrate-based uh, food industry for the most part. And it, it's almost just such a, a rarity. You know, like you said, it's almost a science experiment in that this is not, this is not a metabolic state that most people in the West are familiar with, you know. Well, really, arguably, uh, almost anywhere. I don't know if there's a population that's routinely in ketosis or not. Um, and for me, at least, uh, talking with Cassandra Forsyth when she was working with Volek and that sort of thing, I remember her talking about how hard it was at times to even get in ketosis nutritionally, mm-hmm. um, partly because I think the protein intake was too high, you know, and that sort of thing. But, um, yeah, in fact, I'm going to – I very much want to have uh, Dr. Volek on the, on the show as well uh, to talk about some of these things. Uh, you know, he's perfect fit too because of his lifting background, but – uh, anyway, I, I digress. So um, one of the – especially like rolling off that comment about you know Cassandra having a hard time even getting in ketosis or that kind of thing. Uh, David, maybe you can just start off or set up the topic about responders and non-responders. Uh, what, when we talk about that, what do, you, what do we mean? Well, if I can preface by saying that um, – here's a shameless plug. Anthony and I have co-authored a free ebook about keto diets. 
we break down a lot of the science in, in a very simple, almost uh, comic book like way. Okay. So anybody can understand it, and, and hopefully people can get some um, glean some insight into to the the pros and cons and some of the actual uh, objective research that's been done, rather than kind of a, a biased approach that is typically presented. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and that is available at uh, thinksportsnutrition.com. It's a free download. So, Sounds good. Uh, with that being said, the um, uh, this is crazy. You go back to the, uh, the original uh, Finney eighty three study that, that Anthony alluded to, and you look at uh, the the responses that the elite pro cyclists had on very low carb diets. We're talking like half a bagel a day, mm. and it was only five subjects, as you can imagine. It's you know an elite group; you can't get too many people to do it. But the the responses were all over the map. So even though the the actual test of, of performance, you might say, was a very low intensity ride, it's it's below um, training pace, below ride, uh, below competition pace. There was still a huge variability in response. So two of the five had huge increases in their duration, their ride duration. Two had dramatic decreases in their ability to ride their, their ride duration. And one subject had no change. So this, this alone is fascinating, but unfortunately this study often gets cited as, uh, as saying, Hey, look, you can try these keto diets and there has been shown no, uh, performance decrement. They, they don't decrease performance. And this is actually in the literature, but it's not stated. Well, yes, it was a subject pool of five. So there's, there's, Huge problems with that alone. And also the, the variability was all over the map. So, mm-hmm. yes, you could potentially have huge performance decrements, even at this very low intensity of, of training. So we do know that there, there are responders, non-responders. Some people get into this, this ketotic state uh, easier than others. But um, it, also with, the, with the, the power of this metabolic intervention – comes another layer of fascination with the idea that some people are, are just so much better, uh, better able to, to harness it and to get into this state. Right. A- Anthony, I, I have to ask you because of your biochemistry background, uh, what we're taught in textbooks in physiology class is that, you know, glycolysis can ramp up very quickly, you know, hence the popularity, I think, of, of high-carbohydrate diets and, you know, the limited fuel storage capacity for glycogen and all this stuff, but... If you can get the body to use fats as a fuel, um, aren't those processes slower? I mean, wouldn't that hamper performance, again, based on the speed of some of these pathways, talking about, you know, glycolysis versus beta oxidation and, you know, using uh, oxidative phosphorylation and all that sort of thing? Aren't, isn't the aerobic system, uh, when it comes to fat as a fuel, slower? Or is, is that something that, is too simplified or is misunderstood? Oh, I think you hit it spot on. You're talking about a speedometer. And the 83 fitness study that David just mentioned, if you look at the intensity, which was defined by VO2 max or the aerobic capacity, they're around the mid-60s. And if you're a pro cyclist, you're training in the mid to high 70s. You're racing up to 90 95%. If you're climbing a hill. And so it's a pace that if you were to do that and train at 64% of your VO2 max, you would move from the front of the pack 
to the mid of the pack or the mid of the pack to the back of the pack. You would detrain. And then if you fast forward to or 2015 in the Finning Volant study, you find something that is counterintuitive to the keto clan. And there's nothing wrong with the clan. I think it's a very interesting approach, but it just needs to be explored more. They found that keto-adapted ultra-endurance athletes and elite athletes, not back of the pack, but front of the pack athletes, they burned as much or used as much muscle glycogen at, a, again, a very a, a moderate intensity pace, below training pace. One of our sponsored athletes was in the high-carb adapted group. He said, I could have run this pace for 24 hours, and he races for 24 hours, and still was notably below his race pace. And they both groups, keto-adapted or carb-adapted, the amount of glycogen that disappeared was identical. Mm. Yet the claim from the study in Jeff Volk, there was a, a press release that the keto-adapted athletes were fat-burning machines burning twice as much fat given their indirect measure, which is a different discussion. Mm-hmm. So why would you burn twice as much fat and the same amount of carbs if you're trying to be metabolically efficient? The body does not like to be inefficient mm-hmm. in its movement. Mm-hmm. So there was a huge error that was not described in how they measured and determined fat burning by breath. Because when you're making ketones, it totally whacks the breath measurements to give you data related to how many carbs you burn or how much fat you burn. Interesting. So it's spot on. If you're doing higher intensity work and Finney 21 years later wrote, oh yeah, the guys when they were cycling, when they were doing their hill climb, their performance was, quote, constrained, end quote. Mm. That's all he wrote. Mm -hmm. That's all he said. They bonked. They could not put out the effort when they climbed hills because the intensity required more a rapid a more rapid utilization of fuel or substrate and the keto diet could not deliver okay okay uh in just in the nature of time i want to move this as practical as possible here um let's say we have a listener who wants to try uh, a keto diet some type of ketotic diet uh anthony Let's just start with you. What tips would you offer this person? Uh, you know, is uh, is there something that's nutrigenetic, nutrigenomic? You know, responses monitor themselves. I mean, what tips might you have for someone who's interested in keto diets? Great question, Lonnie. And, and the group from Japan last year showed that there were responders to a high fat diet and non-responders, and that responders showed a gr- much greater increase in lipids or fat inside the muscle. Mm-hmm. and decreased insulin sensitivity or their carbohydrate metabolism became impaired. And so I think it's very important, one, let's get some objective, accurate measures. Invest in the money to go to a lab, pull blood out of your vein, and get your starting ketone value for beta-hydroxybutate or BHB. Mm-hmm. And then invest after you think you've become keto-adapted and get it done again. The, med- the handheld meters are all over the map for taking finger stick blood, and urine test strips, abandon ship. It's a waste. They're very, very misleading. Thank you. And yep, you may be yep. greatly misled. And then two, chart your performance and your physique if you're trying to attain physique changes before and do it well and accurately. And then chart it a month or six weeks later and record what you're eating with great diligence. My Fitness Pal by Under Armour is a great app for that. All and right. then you can make a determination – Am I a positive responder 
or a negative responder to a keto-adapted re- regime or regimen. Okay. Yeah, I had a very interesting conversation with uh, Sean Casey, who's sort of a, a friend of the show and whatnot recently about, you know, I almost feel that in some ways, and this is addressing the responder, non-responder, and maybe the genetic uh, side of things, but in a lot of ways, and Mike Nelson will say this too, you know, research is presented as an average of a, a sample, you know, of a, of a group mm-hmm. of people. And when you have something, and to me, this first became a uh, I first became aware of it with creatine studies. You know, there was the non-responders that were just, you know, you don't want to reverse engineer your data and just remove them, you know. And so, but if you include them, they're skewing the group means, you know, the averages of your data and what you conclude and that sort of thing. And so I almost feel like the way we were doing studies now or have been doing studies in past decades is a little crude in that we we try to do a gender comparison or we do a, a, a high fitness versus low fitness level comparison or or that sort of thing. And I almost feel like in the future, and this is again a tangent, but we're going to move toward specific uh, genotypes of people. You know, like I have this collection of genes, this study applies to me, you know, that sort of thing. And compared with uh, a, another uh, genetic variant, you know, that might be a, a more common percentage of the population or, or what have you. I, again, I'm just trying to think mechanistically about this idea of responders, non-responders, and which studies apply to me, if that makes any sense. I don't know. Do you have a comment on that? Or mutants or non-mutants. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, I agree completely. Yeah. And we, we're seeing that in drug studies where they're actually collecting gene or, or omics profiles and then segregating groups based upon that because we know from for decades now that certain ethnic groups don't respond or respond adversely to certain drugs. Mm-hmm. They just don't work mm-hmm. or they have significant adverse effects. If you are African-American or if you're Asian, don't take this drug. If you aren't, it's okay. Right. Dialing yeah. that yeah. in and being much more definitive is, a, is the next generation. It just It's a very labor and time intensive in cost-intensive process. Right. I, I think the industry, if, if it becomes one, you know, with companies like 23andMe or those sorts of people who will give you a profile, uh, it's almost going to have to become commonplace enough. For for example, our lift, uh, lifting listeners, uh, how do they know which studies apply to them unless, like you said, you don't just drive, go through a drive-through and get a biopsy or, you know, get some kind of cheek swab sample or I don't know what it might be uh, to know what profile you even have and you, what studies apply to you. But maybe we will move in that direction. Uh, I don't know. We'll see. Um, this last question that I have, uh, I think we could do a whole episode just on this. I am fascinated by the idea of ketone supplements. David, let's just bring you in on this a little bit. Um, uh, you could talk about ketone salts or the different versions of these things, whatever it is, but uh, I am fascinated by this, I can tell you, because being in ketosis, like nutrition-based ketosis, is, you know, it's actually tough for some people to even get into ketosis. It requires a fairly radical intervention and that sort of thing. The idea that I could swallow a pill and be in, uh, like, supplemental ketosis, uh, even when my blood glucose or insulin levels were higher you know, because I'm I'm not on a ketotic diet. I'm on a regular carb diet and that sort of thing. And yet, I'm introducing ketones into this mix. It's a very novel, almost bizarre scenario, I think, to the human body. Right? That I've I've got ketone bodies floating around in my bloodstream, 
and I'm not on a low-carb diet. You know, I'm in a higher insulin, higher blood sugar state. I, I, this sounds like uncharted territory to me. I don't – and yet there's all these interesting studies that come out, right? That I read recently that um, higher concentrations of ketones in circulation even help with wound healing and that sort of thing. I mean, there's all these claims. All right, but I digress. What is, what's your take on ketone supplements? Yeah, that's. Uh, I think it's sexy as hell, to put it bluntly. <laughs> uh, but w- while we are uh, discussing supplements, I have to do a very quick disclosure, just so nobody calls uh, BS at the end. Uh, Anthony, Anthony and I work for Vitargo Global Sciences, so we uh, sell a, a fast-absorbing uh, carbohydrate supplement. We are not advocating a high-carb diet or anything like that. We don't. We're not pushing it. We're not trying to advertise it. This is just for disclosure. So I appreciate that. And says, oh, you're hating on keto diets, even though we're not. But because we're giving a, a more global, well-rounded perspective, it may contradict what uh, what other people have seen because they've put out you know strictly positive information. Thanks for being forthright. Stuff. Yep, that's good. Yeah. So uh, with that said, um, yeah, I, I presented on on the idea of, of keto supplementation a couple of years back at a local endurance training symposium, and it, the reaction was almost none like I, I thought this was the coolest thing ever mm-hmm. and i think it was just kind of too advanced or too ahead of its time but the idea you're right that we have this potential other energy source that could allow us to go all day and yet we also have our carbs that would allow us to get the power output uh, i mean the the implications are incredible and i would gladly defer to anthony as uh, somebody i consider to be an expert on this part Thanks, David. Uh, I, I think it's really important to describe two things, gentlemen. One, are there any studies that have shown that keto supplement ingestion improves performance or body composition in adult humans? No. Are there any studies that have been done that are not public? Yes. What do those studies show? That with a form of beta-hydroxybutyrate, one of the main ketones that your body makes. Mm-hmm. You even make it during exercise. If, you, if you're not on a keto diet, the, the, that, the, that form, it's like people of all are very familiar with L-amino acids, L-leucine, L-tryptophan, L-isoleucine, L-glutamine. And ketones also share that L or D form. And all the supplements that are commercially available have a mixture of both. It's called the racemic mixture of D and L beta-hydroxybutyr because it's a lot cheaper. Mm-hmm. The D part, the body does not like, and it competes with the L part or the L form. And so you're getting a 50% diluted mixture of beta-hydroxybutyrate. There is an actual FDA approval for the native form, and that is not commercial available because right now it's terribly, terribly expensive. What has been the dosing that this group in England has been working with, up to 500, and 500 plus milligrams or even up to 1.1 grams per kilo body weight. Okay. Huge mm-hmm. doses. Very, very expensive doses. And I was, I was at a conference last week in London, Elite Sports Expo, and I gave a talk on keto and keto diets, ketones and keto diets. And a woman came up to me after, and she has a colleague that works with the British Triathlon Foundation and Olympic athletes. 
And she'd share with me that a number of the athletes, and we, we were sp- speaking about the group in Oxford that has the patents on these ketone products, a number of the athletes experienced significant GI distress with these doses. Uh, we, don't know, we don't know what the data will show, but it is a very, very intriguing topic. And as David and I have talked about, it's being able to have your cake and eat it too. I can eat carbs and be, ke- be ketotic yeah. and have high blood ketones. Right. Best of both worlds. Right. Uh, what fascinates me about this, and I, I, I'm thinking back to something David said about science experiments, like, you know, in real time. Uh, it's just you're asking the body to be in something that it's, I think, evolutionarily just n- not familiar with, right? Which is uh, I'm ketotic and I'm not hypoenergetic. I'm not hypoglycemic. I'm not low insulin concentrations, right? It's just this, you're throwing into the mix this fuel source, this, you know, nutrient. Uh, and it sounds like what, from what you're saying, provided you can actually ab- absorb enough of it and not have uh, diarrhea and that sort of thing. But what a bizarre metabolic scenario for your body to have to respond to. And I, I mean, to me, and there, I'm sure there's literature out there just that could at least indirectly point me around because I haven't been looking at it. But to me, that just seems like such uncharted territory. Like, what does a human body do with that? You know what I mean? It's, um, I don't know. You're just throwing this nutrient into the mix of a, of a re- nutritionally replete person. Um, I don't know. Wild stuff. It, it is. It's a very, as David said, he loves the word sexy. Uh, <laughs> and he is, by the way. But it is a very intriguing topic. But to me, it's just you're shifting right now. You're just shifting fuel utilization from one to the other. We don't know if there is an advantage conferred upon the individual who's using ketones orally as a fuel rather than if they were nutritionally replete, as you said, and not using ketones. We just don't know that. But the promise is some is. Typically, it will you will be better. It will lead to greater performance, but the data do not exist. Yep. Actually, if I if I could piggyback on that real quick, um, you mentioned the the no change and potentially improved performance. There's actually potential to decrease performance because, to my knowledge, we don't know whether or not the uh, effect of ketones on the brain comes from a a direct suppression effect or if it's um, the, the suppression of um, brain activity as a result of low carbs because the brain loves carbs, right? The brain uses glucose as the fuel. And part of the reason we go into ketosis is, is so the brain can actually have fuel in a, a carbohydrate deficit. So if we are uh, actually using ketones and suppressing brain activity, CNS activity, that's going to have some pretty serious implications for performance uh, especially for lifting athletes, strength, power, speed, that kind of thing. Yeah. And we, we're really far away from, from knowing the answer to that. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you this, uh, David. Uh, I've always, I've been curious. I mean, if we get away from the fuel, the, the substrate idea just for a minute, as far as just providing energy, um, what's your take on the pharmaceutical aspects? Because I, I have not been reading on this heavily lately. <laughs> Uh, is there something I mean because for example clinically with different neurological disorders you know we'll, we've historically tried to put people in ketosis to, to deal with that and that sort of thing I don't know what's your take on that yeah and that's you're you're 
picking up what I'm putting down. That's that's great. Uh, specifically, epilepsy is where there's yep. there's yep. unregulated excessive brain activity. Just to put it generally, and keto diets will help um, help to control that. But whether that's simply a, a mitigation of the excess, whether it's the ketones are not allowing your brain to get overexcited, or there's a direct suppression effect. That's where it gets a little tricky, uh, in particular when it comes to ketone supplementation. I know um, uh, Dr. T. Nelson mentioned something about uh, uh, mitigation of concussion injury by quick provision of exogenous ketones, which is fascinating. I don't know if there was a direct conclusion to that conversation, but it was a great start. And uh, that's that's basically where my uh, where my knowledge stops. It's it's more questions than answers. But maybe Anthony has more. Uh, the drug or the medical applications remain fascinating. And there are some really elegant animal studies that have been done. I mean, ketone diets have been around for a long time. And as David mentioned, for epile- uh, management of seizure disorders, uh, we still don't know, like beta alanine, we don't know how it works. We speculate. We don't know how a ketone diets or high circulating ketones from a diet can impact upon brain function. We have guesses, but we don't know definitively. But I would say, who cares? They we're getting some very interesting results, and they're being translated into clinical populations. So it's mm-hmm. it's another science experiment. Wait and see. And two or three years from now, from now, if we have an anniversary show, it will be a very different landscape. Okay. No, that's good to know. So, in your opinion, this is this field is advancing pretty rapidly. Indeed, and there are a lot of interested groups. Okay. Yeah, that's what's very interesting to me because I think the whole idea, uh, and again, I sound a little redundant and we're just about out of time here, but the whole idea of being able to put yourself uh, in supplemental ketosis, uh, I don't know. It's, it's just such uncharted territory, and I'm, I am also fascinated by the, the potential for some nutraceutical effect of all this thing. Uh, I'm always wrestling with the idea. Is, is there something directly, almost pharmaceutical that we're getting from this or – you know, metabolism, especially I think in the dietary supplement world, so many logical sort of, you know, ideas, so many theories. In fact, a lot of supplements are sold at the hypothesis stage, I think, uh, <laughs> that homeostasis ends up ruining that logic because something downregulates or upregulates. And to me, I'm always wrestling with is there something that's more of a direct effect if by consuming the ketones were, uh, like David was saying, were actually downregulating, uh, I don't know, brain function in some way, or, you know, is it, is it a compensation by the body? And then especially because of the, the bizarre, bizarre scenario of being in ketosis when you're nutritionally replete, wow, I, I don't even know where this is going to go. So I'm looking forward to, to some of this as well, you know, especially when, yeah, when uh, Dr. Nelson was talking about the concussion thing, or I was just reading some stuff about wound healing, um, which actually jives with some of what I've seen with wound healing, uh, being actually poor in a hyperglycemic state. Uh, anyway, I'm not going to go on too, too much on that. But, yeah, the applications, uh, because it's more readily accessible, I, I guess, being ketotic is more red- will be more readily accessible, even though it's in a bizarre uh, metabolic milieu. Still pretty cool. Anyway, okay, well, thank you guys for being on. I appreciate that. Uh, any closing thoughts, David? Maybe can you just restate where people can get your free info? Sure. It is thinksportsnutrition.com. All right. Get your free ebook there. Very cool. 
Well, thank you guys for being on. I really appreciate it. Like I said, it's uh, it's really one of the thrusts, right, of Iron Radio is to be able to get some people on who understand physique resistance training, but also understand evidence-based practice and that sort of thing uh, so we can share some of these things. And I, I really like... I really like the general philosophy that you guys have, which is sort of neutral, objective. Let's see what's real. You know, when you speculate, you, you say you speculate. You know, when there's no evidence, you can say, we well, you know, we don't know that part. Uh, and you don't actually, sadly, that's rare. <laughs> it can be rare in our field where people just say, there's no evidence on that. You know, we don't know. And it's okay what we don't know. Uh, and then hopefully the science catches up. So, okay. Well, thanks again, guys. Thank you, Lonnie. Thanks for doing what you do. I, I think you do a great job of helping to advance the conversation. So thank you very much. Hey, listeners. Have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store, one for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. So we try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each Hall of Iron are actually based on our own recommendations protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.